Welcome to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. I'm your host, Rick Cole, and each week we take you on a trip down memory lane back 50 years right here on the Hockey Podcast Network. This week we are looking at April 5th to 11th, 1971, as the Stanley Cup Playoff Tournament begins for that season. Well, it's that time of year again, everybody's favorite golf tournament. They're in Augusta, Georgia to compete for the coveted Green Jacket and DraftKings, the leader in one-day fantasy sports, is putting you right in the center of the action by giving you a shot to land in the green. This week, DraftKings has given you a free shot at the $1 million top prize when you download and sign up using the promo code TH. If you haven't tried DraftKings, this is the time to get involved. It's, it's really easy to play. Pick six golfers, stay under the salary cap, and submit your lineup before the tournament tees off early Thursday morning. Then sit back and just follow the action. The more red numbers they have on the leaderboard, the closer you'll be to winning some green. Rack up points for pars, birdies, finishing position, and more. Even though you may not be able to hit the course with the pros, DraftKings has given you the chance to scratch your competitive itch and reign supreme. Download the DraftKings app now and use code THPN during sign-up. This week, DraftKings is putting you in the action with a free shot at the $1 million top prize. That's code THPN. HPN and you can get a free shot at $1 million top prize only at DraftKings. There's a minimum $5 deposit required and eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for all the details. And don't forget our other two sponsors as well in addition to DraftKings. Uh, Newspapers.com gives us great help in doing our research and the Breakwall Brewing Company supports us as well. The Breakwall located in Port Colborne, Ontario. So when we left you last time, the 1970-71 regular season had been completed by the 14 National Hockey League teams and the Stanley Cup playoffs and our coverage were about to begin. Here's what we have in store for you this week. Gordie Howe says he's not sure he's going to play next season and really who could blame him? We'll have a little bit on what Gordie says his plans are for next fall given he won't be participating with his Detroit Red Wings, who are not in the playoffs this time around. And before the Montreal-Boston series even started, Boston writers were reporting that the Habs were already a demoralized group, demoralized just at the thought of having to win four games out of seven from the indestructible Boston Bruins. And of course, we'll have uh, news from the first few games of the opening round of the playoffs, including a rather bizarre incident that took place between the Rangers and the Maple Leafs and there's much much more as well so let's begin this week with from news and notes just after the finish of the regular season and just before those playoff games started so we start off with the hockey news that venerable publication uh, out every week that I bought religiously since I was about 10 years old 
Well, the Hockey News named their 1970-71 All-Stars for this week. Four members of the Boston Bruins and two from the New York Rangers comprised that All-Star team. Uh, the weekly publication named forwards Phil Esposito, Ken Hodge, Johnny Busick, and defenseman Bobby Orr of the Bruins to their first team with goalie Eddie Jackman and defenseman Brad Park from the Rangers. The second team was just a little bit more diverse. Uh, goalie Jacques Plant and center Dave Keon came from the Toronto Maple Leafs. The Blackhawks placed two players, left winger Bobby Hall and maybe a little bit of a surprise, young defenseman Keith Magnuson of the Blackhawks. The right winger was Ivan Cournoyer of the Montreal Canadiens and the other defenseman, also from the Habs, defenseman again, J.C. Tromblay. Well, the Red Wings won't be participating in the playoffs. Absolutely no surprise given the abysmal season that took place in Detroit. But the speculation was now centering around what was going to happen next season. The Red Wings uh, know only two things for sure about next year. Ned Harkness is going to return as general manager for better or probably for worse. And Doug Barkley is uh, confirmed as going to be behind the bench once again as coach. But what about Gordy Howe, who has a year left on his contract, but with lots of speculation about maybe Gordy not wanting to play? Well, we don't know for sure. And Gordy even doesn't know for sure if he's going to be back for a 26th National Hockey League season. Or is he going to be back as maybe a Red Wing executive, which most people feel Gordy will do when his playing days are officially over? Gordy says, I'm just not sure myself what I'm going to do next fall. Gordy said he'll be at training camp and then he'll decide. He says if he can compare himself both mentally and physically, then he just might play another season. And if he does, hockey will be better for it. In Toronto, Maple Leaf fans had high expectations for a team that they felt would be competitive in the playoffs for the first time since their last Stanley Cup win in 1967. The big question in Toronto was who would start in goal for the Maple Leafs. Uh, Leafs coach Johnny McClellan was being coy about his choice between Jacques Plante and Bernie Perrant before the first game, which was going to be Tuesday night. The prevailing uh, opinion around the league was that uh, Plant would get the initial nod for game one, with Perrant likely to see action quickly thereafter. While a lot of writers around the league were giving the fourth place Leafs the nod over the second rank Rangers because of what many felt was Toronto's superior goalkeeping, the New Yorkers themselves believed that their net-minding duel of Eddie Jackman and Gilles Vilmier would give the Broadway Blue Shirts the edge over the Maple Leafs. The Rangers had, after all, won the Vesna Trophy as the best goalkeeping average by an NHL team, but Toronto had Perrant only for the last few weeks of the season after they had acquired him shortly before the trade deadline from the Philadelphia Flyers. And if they'd had Bernie for the whole year partnering up with Jacques Plant, there's no telling actually how well Toronto's record might have been. They might have even beaten out the Rangers for that Vezina trophy. Another thing that contributes to Toronto's 
a better defensive record after a bad early start of the season was the acquisition of veteran defenseman Bob Bond, who seemed to sew together a patchwork defense corps made up of mostly youngsters, and that gave the Leafs goalies much better protection. Don't tell the Rangers' Glenn Sather that Plant is the key to Toronto's success, though. Sather, never one to be shy about slagging a former teammate, had this to say about Perron. Glenn says, everybody says Perron is so steady, but I remember him when we were teammates in Oklahoma City and then in Boston. We'd never know whether he'd be hot or cold. A nice touch, uh, Glenn, for slagging a former teammate like that. Rangers goalie Eddie Jackman at least showed a little more class than Sazer. Sather when he was asked about the Toronto goalkeeping. He simply said, I don't want to comment on the Toronto goalies, but I think this series will be decided by the team that takes most advantages of penalties. The Leafs have more young players than we do, and they're more apt to get into trouble with penalties. In Montreal, everybody knows that the Habs are going to really have their hands full with the powerful Boston Bruins, and the chances of winning even one game most feel will depend on having all hands on deck and everyone playing at the top of their abilities. Well, that notion was jarred on a Monday morning practice in Montreal when tough guy... I said tough, not smart. John Ferguson decided that it was just a wonderful idea to throw a very solid but completely unnecessary body check into Canadian speedster Ivan Cornwallier. The result? Pretty much what you would expect when one throws a check on a mate who's not expecting or prepared for it. The roadrunner left the workout in great pain with a suspected Charlie horse and a status for game one at uh, Monday afternoon was unfortunately greatly in doubt. And of course, greatly in doubt with that would be Montreal's hopes to even be competitive against the Bruins. Meanwhile, in Boston, the Bruins were describing their first-round opponents as demoralized already. The prevailing opinion was that because Canadians had been embarrassed twice by Boston in that final week of the season, they would likely were just going to roll over and die when the pressure of the playoffs began to exert its debilitating effects. Don Ory, defenseman of the Bruins, explains why Montreal has to have been affected by their recent dismal performances. Ori says, I'm not saying we're going to skate out there and run them down. I should get smart and say we'll win in four to seven games. But you have to wonder if they've been destroyed psychologically. You know, the last two games has to do something to them. They were bad beatings. If they can be taken right before the playoffs, there's no reason we can't take them in the playoffs. They could be tough. But really, they have to fear us. Well, the Bruins captain, John Busick, may be a little more mature and understanding that Mr. Ori just provided some great bulletin board fodder. Uh, he was a little more conciliatory when he was asked. He said, we can't count on it. We have to think they're going to be tough. But, Johnny says, we do have a lot of power. As for Bobby Orr, young Bobby is not counting on anything. Uh, Bobby said he thinks that uh, this series is up in the air. Bob said they're pointing to what we did in six games. We won five of six from them. Sure, last week we humiliated them twice. But you really have to wonder. We know they're a good team. 
a very, very good team. Or went on to say, we know that the Habs are hungry because they missed the playoffs last year. And Bob says a lot of those guys have a lot of pride. Or says they remember a long, tough series. Bob says, remember what I said about the Habs. Maybe prophetic words from young Bobby Orr. Most observers around the NHL felt that the St. Louis Blues would have absolutely no trouble disposing of the fourth place North Stars in their series. Blues general manager coach Scotty Bowman figured his team's best asset is their very strong defense, which was bolstered by the midseason acquisition of Al Arbor, who moved back to playing from behind the bench as coach, and the veteran Carl Brewer, who once again came out of retirement. The Blues had acquired the rights to Brewer from the Red Wings in the deal that sent Red Berenson to Detroit and brought Gary Unger to St. Louis. Bowman said that Brewer has helped us tremendously, not only on defense, but on the power play and killing penalties as well. He's doing everything for the Blues and he looks like he's not even lost a step in the times that he has been sitting out after playing for the Maple Leafs. Uh, and starring for them in the early part of the 1960s. The fourth uh, first-round series in these playoffs has the high-powered Chicago Blackhawks taking on the third-place Philadelphia Flyers, a team with decent defense, but a pop-gun attack. The only question with this set is if the Flyers can win a game. And... uh, most people felt that ain't likely for Philadelphia to have any chance they need three things to happen they must shut down the vaunted Chicago offense and that means not only the big guns Stan McKeat and Bobby Hall but they also have to contain the Hawks lesser lesser lights most of whom possess far greater weapons than anybody on Philadelphia then to be successful the Flyers have to be able to penetrate the impressive Chicago defensive core and then try and beat their outstanding goalkeeper Tony Esposito and finally for the Flyers to have any success their own netminder Doug Favell must find a way to perform miracles of biblical proportion in order to keep the Hawks from running the Flyers right out of the rink the odds are heavily stacked in favor of Chicago in that series Here's another Stanley Cup note before the games actually got underway. The National Hockey League announced on Tuesday that Sunday's Stanley Cup playoff game in Philadelphia against the Blackhawks, Game 4 of that series, would be the CBS Game of the Week on that American television network. Of course, seizing a great opportunity to sell the game to thousands of prospective new fans, the league says that the game will be blacked out in Philadelphia. What a wonderful visionary move by the National Hockey League, a typical National Hockey League move. I always said that professional hockey has to be the greatest sport on the planet in order to be able to survive the idiots who run it. So the 1971 playoffs would begin on four fronts on the same night. That's right. They didn't stagger games, so there would be a match for fans to see almost every night, like we would find out in a few years. There was none of that. All the series played 
on the same night, which was fu- made a fun out-of-town scoreboard because you had three other games going on, and it was almost like real-time progress. You could see just exactly how each series was going on the same night. In those game ones, there were some mild surprises, but basically for the first night, things went pretty much as everyone had them scripted. In Boston, the Bruins took a 3-1 to decision from the Canadians in a game that had a couple of, well, my, minor uh, things that caught our attention. The Canadians shocked everybody by starting young rookie goalie Ken Dryden, who had all of six National Hockey League games under his belt. They started him in goal, and he was very, very good. Secondly, the Bruins superstar Bobby Orr uncharacteristically lost his cool in this game and was sent to the penalty box with a 10-minute misconduct for verbally abusing an official. Some felt the verbal abuse was actually bordered on physical and many called for a suspension to the Boston superstar. The fine hockey writer of the Montreal Gazette, Pat Curran, tells the story for us in that first game. He rates that maybe they'll call it the playoff of the Boston Strangler or the night when Bobby Orr became a human being as berserk hockey players go. Or maybe some may remember it in years to come as the game when goalie Ken Dryden got his first taste of playoff pressure. In any case, the Stanley Cup quarterfinal opener had a little bit of everything. The Canadians gave it everything they had, but they didn't have enough to hold the powerful Bruins from a 3-1 victory. Montreal came up with their best effort on Boston Garden Ice since they took the last playoff round two years ago. They showed a reversal from Sunday's humiliating defeat by matching the Bruins check for check and hit for hit, and that was not expected. There was none of the intimidation that needled the Habs into submission in those final regular season games. For a while, it seemed that Dryden's superb goaltending, he stopped 39 Boston shots. They thought that might help them steal the opener, the best of seven round, which continues in the uh, Montreal tonight. Remember, he's reporting right the morning after that uh, uh, first game of the playoffs. However, the Bruins were a little sharper and a little more alert on their scoring opportunities. They scored once in each period for their 11th consecutive playoff victory behind the goalkeeping of Jerry Cheevers and his 30 saves. Taking advantage of early Montreal penalties when minors to Pete Mahovlich and Terry Harper overlapped for 44 seconds, Bobby Orr gave the Bruins a lead on a low sizzler from the point. John Ferguson, one of the Habs' best forwards in a driving effort all night, powered through the crease, as he usually does, to tie the score during a second period penalty to Boston rear guard Dallas Smith. But Wayne Cashman, on one of the few plays when Montreal checkers appeared to be sleeping, tipped in a pass from Smith midway through the middle period to put Boston back in the lead for good. The clincher for the Bruins came in the ninth minute of the final frame when Mark Tardiff lost the puck to Johnny Busick while wheeling out of his own end. Fred Stanfield quickly let go of a 30-footer that caught Dryden by surprise. After the game, Ken said, I just wasn't ready for that one. Ken told reporters after the game that he, he wasn't really surprised that he was 
told that he was going to be starting this game. Ken said, I knew there was a 50-50 chance I would play, and the pressure of the game wasn't any more or any less than I expected. That's actually a pretty uh, quick, concise answer. Uh, We would learn in future years that Ken didn't always give quick or concise answers when interviewed. It seems that referee John Ashley must have done a really good job or maybe a really bad job, depending on uh, how you see these things, because both teams were complaining about his officiating, which is usually the case with John Ashley. It was a bitterly fought game all the way, but as we said, both teams didn't like Ashley's work. Montreal general manager Sam Pollock minced no words when he said, we gave it a good effort, but we got a hosing from Ashley. Pollock was particularly incensed over the incident involving Bobby Orr we mentioned earlier. The Bruins super defenseman blew his top after being called for holding Yvonne Cornway and he drew a misconduct for berating Ashley and then got away without further penalty when he pushed linesman Ron Ego. He came out of the penalty box and he had to be restrained from going after the officials by his teammates. Sam Pollock said that Ferguson would have gotten life if he'd done a thing like that. Any other player in the league would have been suspended. It didn't mean much because we couldn't score when he was away during the 10 minutes, but it might have been important if we had to play overtime or maybe if Orr had to miss a few games. After the game, Bobby Bobby Orr was asked about his uh, behavior and and he cool had cooled off by then and here's what he explained or said that it was a cheap penalty and that he said so to Ashley Bobby says I guess it was stupid to blow up at that time of the game but everything turned out all right anyway in the other Eastern Division opening game, uh, the New York Rangers edged the Maple Leafs by a score of 5-4 to four at Madison Square Garden, and Gerald Eskenazi gives us a bit of a report there. Breaking dramatically in the final period from the Rangers' tradition of losing the big playoff games, the New Yorkers scored twice to defeat the Maple Leafs 5-4. Walt Kachuk, who was to say later he didn't remember who nearly beheaded him, burst between Bob Bond and Jim Dory, didn't flinch as Dory flailed at him with a stick and spun a bullet past Jacques Plante, the Leafs' asthmatic netminder, for the winning goal. The 17,250 fans at Madison Square Garden, as fickle as they are loud, suddenly erupted in a loving cheer. Uh, That was unusual because earlier there were boos of frustrations as the Leafs put on a brilliant effort in the first two periods forechecking the New Yorkers into distraction, prohibiting rushes from forming while playing opportunistic hockey. The Rangers made Bob Bond a special target all night and they were going after him at every opportunity. He was returning from a severe neck injury that he suffered two weeks ago, but that Uh, special attention by the Rangers did not stop Bobby Bond who was hitting everything that moved. John McClellan said to get Bond out of the lineup they're going to have to break his leg possibly recalling the broken ankle Bobby suffered during the 1964 playoffs and even that didn't keep him out of that series. 
In the Western Division, the Blackhawks had absolutely no trouble disposing of the Flyers by a 5-2 score at Chicago Stadium before the usual crowd of somewhere over 20,000. The Flyers knew they had to contain Bobby Hall to have any chance in this series, and in Game 1, they just didn't do it as the Golden Jets scored twice to lead the Hawks to that first game win. The... uh, Mild surprise took place in St. Louis where the Blues hosted the North Stars and these are two fairly evenly matched teams. The North Stars uh, upset the Blues by a a 3-2 score. It wasn't really a a great game but the St. Louis fans made a lot of noise and of course made it made it interesting but in the end Minnesota prevailed. Uh, This was a case of uh, a team's best players being what they had to be their best players. Jude Druin, Danny Grant, and Jean-Paul Parisi took care of the scoring for Minnesota, and Cesar Maniego put on a masterful goaltending performance. St. Louis scores, by the way, were Fran Huck and Gary Unger, who were two recent Scotty Bowman acquisitions, and it looks like this series could actually end up being a toss-up and may go either way. If the games on the opening night of the playoffs were reasonably mundane, night two of the Stanley Cup tournament on Thursday was anything but that. One big upset, one mildly surprising upset in a wild game highlighted the Eastern contest while the West continued to to form with the Hawks whipping the Flyers and the Blues and North Star series being evened up at a game apiece. The Toronto-New York game was... Uh, a, a, a strange contest, and we will let Dan Proudfoot of the Globe and Mail of Toronto tell that story. A bizarre brawling end to Toronto Maple Leafs' 4-1 win over the Rangers last night couldn't hide the fact that the Leafs were by far the more effective team. The Leafs' victory tied the best-of-seven Eastern Division semifinal at 1-1. The third and fourth games, of course, will be played in Toronto Saturday and Sunday. Paul Henderson scored twice, his third and fourth goals in two games of the quarterfinal, and Dave Keon shot his third, assisted on another by Gary Monahan. Former Leaf Tim Horton got the Ranger goal late in the second period, but by that point Toronto was already ahead by three. This game will be remembered for the mob scenes that rivaled Times Square on St. Patrick's Day. Vic Hatfield tossing Bernie Perrant's goalie mask into the crowd and Frank King Clancy, the Leafs' 68-year-old vice president, running from the opposite side of the rink to retrieve Plant's mask. Clancy didn't succeed in his quest and was escorted back to his seat by four Madison Square Garden police officers. When Plant's mask couldn't be retrieved from a very raucous crowd of 17,250, Bernie was unable to continue without any facial protection. So Leaf coach John McClellan replaced his goaltender for the final four minutes and eight seconds. The Hockey Night in Canada telecast of this one was actually... Uh, really, really interesting, and I thought well done by announcers Bill Hewitt and Bob Goldham. For a good, oh, maybe two, three minutes, I, there was no commentary at all from either of Goldham 
or Hewitt. They just sat back like the rest of us and watched the foolishness of the fighting that took place on the ice. Of course, the Rangers were trying to send the message that with the Leafs leading at that point, they weren't going to take anything from anybody. And so, of course, Vic Hadfield, the big tough guy, started things off by taking on Jimmy Harrison. And eventually, everybody ended up on the ice. Uh, we will let Bob Goldham kind of comment on what he thought. Now, Bob Goldham was a great, great hockey player, a wonderful defenseman, and I thought in his commentary, he showed he knew the game, he knew the game of hockey as well as anyone who ever was a com- uh, a player who who provided color commentary for broadcast. Far better than anything we listen to uh, 50 years later. But listen to Bob and Bill as well as they comment about Perrant's mask being thrown into the spectators. In the midst of all that fracas, Bill, uh, somebody, one of the Ranger players threw Bernie Perrant's face mask up into the crowd, and I doubt very much if he'll get it back, and I just wonder uh, if the goaltenders carry a spare mask. I would imagine they do, but... uh, Well, let's hope he gets it back, because, uh, you know, you get used to one mask, and... uh, That's Bernie Perrot trying to tell referee Lloyd Gilmore. Well, the police are moving in and trying to find it. Quite a congregation over by the boards there. There must be at least uh, 15 or 20 policemen there now, at least. Well, I'm still trying to figure out what all this fighting crew is. Uh, we had a pretty good hockey game going along here. This broke out. Uh, lots of good end-to-end rush. Lots of good goaltending, good shooting, and then all of a sudden it uh, developed into uh, that tier five thing, and uh, it still hasn't accomplished anything or proven anything. And uh, Frank King Clancy is down there now. Trying there he is, leaning over the boards. Uh, you can see him there beside the policeman uh, pointing and talking to someone out there. And I guess it's uh, regarding Perron's uh, face mask. One thing for sure, wherever you find the action, where you find King Clancy. <laughs> well, I think he's trying to help get that face mask somehow. He's certainly got lots of protection. That protection that Bill Hewitt was referring to was the uh, quartet of New York police officers that surrounded King. Otherwise, he probably would have been mobbed by that partisan New York crowd. They 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 escorted King back to where he was sitting on the other side of the ice, and he was none the worse for wear. And as wild as the Toronto-New York game was, the contest in Boston between the Bruins and the Canadians actually featured something that was completely unthinkable. The Bruins jumped out to a 5-1 to lead in this game, and people around Boston Gardens were actually wondering if the Habs would even bother playing the final two games of the season, or the series, as they saw it. The Bruins looked like world beaters. There was no doubt they were going to win their second consecutive Stanley Cup. 
But guess what happened? The wheels fell off of the Boston train and the Canadians came back to claim a completely unforeseen 7-5 victory, evening the series at a game apiece with the discombobulated Bruins. Tom Fitzgerald of the Boston Globe describes how it all happened. There will be a slight delay in the progress of the Bruins to another Stanley Cup. That much was assured in Boston Garden last night when a late attack of mass ineffectiveness seized the defenders of the trophy and led to a shocking 7-5 overturn at the hands of the suddenly aroused Montreal Canadiens. Some of the 14,994 onlookers could scarcely credit the scene as the Bruins gave up five goals in the last period after a relatively convincing show through the earlier stages. This squared the opening series at one game apiece and put a quite different complexion on the competition which now moves to Montreal for games on Saturday and Sunday evenings. This was not a matter for bright contemplation either because the Bruins have a most recent record of five Stanley Cup losses up there in the forum in 1968 and 69. The calamity that overwhelmed this Boston team was not alibied by anybody who had the right to give the word. The players were understandably grim and self-contained, but coach Tom Johnson had a firm and uncompromising attitude. We just had a total defensive collapse in the last period, Johnson said. A total collapse. In a sense, the, the second game provided a contest between the stars of two separate hockey generations, and eventually it was the representative of an earlier day who claimed top billing in this one. For two periods, the game was dominated by Bobby Orr, who scored one goal himself and assisted on three others as the Bruins went ahead by 5-2, the remaining goals being contributed by Johnny McKenzie, Teddy Green, Wayne Cashman, and Derek Sanderson. The only responses for Montreal over that stretch were by Yvon Cornway, a gifted and quite gritty little right winger, and Henri Richard, whose tightly curled gray hair makes him look more ancient than his 34 years. Then... There was a flashback to some of the Canadians' greatest days of glory when a takeover by one of the game's greatest French stars took place in this game. Starting that final period, Jean Beliveau scored two quick goals himself and assisted on what proved to be the actual game clincher by tough old Johnny Ferguson. Jacques Lemaire scored on a breakaway against the careless Boston defenders and there was another on a reasonably close facsimile by Frank Mahovlich to account for the rest on that five-goal avalanche. But this was the night of John Beliveau, whose two goals and two assists lifted him to the head of the list among Stanley Cup scorers with 159 points, one ahead of the great Gordie Howe. It was just a little more than a year ago when John felt, quote, the legs might be getting a little too old. But there was a month late last season when they felt good again, he said after the game. He said, it helped me to make my decision to try and play another year, and Canadians are glad he did. 
John laughed off an idea that he was feeling young again, but he did admit that there was a nice feeling in what had happened in Boston Garden after his team had been declared an almost hapless short-ender against the Bruins, even by experts in his own hometown. Now, at 39, John had a sense of the triumphs to which he had been uh, accustomed in his early days with the Rocket and all the others. He was aware of how the Bruins felt. It's a bad feeling, he said, when you start a last period leading by two or three goals and then find that you're only one ahead. Something can happen to you, and something did. Something happened to the Bruins, and the collapse was launched by those goals which Beliveau put together in a space of only one minute and 24 seconds at the start of the final period. The first was on a power play during a penalty to Phil Esposito. Esposito himself had one of those disappointing evenings, and while he was sunk in disappointment like all the other players, he did provide some analysis of the game. Phil said, I just wasn't shooting, referring to his total of only three tries at Ken Dryden in the Montreal goal. As Phil said, I guess I was too conscious of the guy checking me. He went on to say that the whole thing was sort of psychological. He was passing off too much instead of shooting, but he says, the next game, I'll go back to shooting like a maniac. It was also, of course, a very disappointing evening for very specially for Boston goalie Eddie Johnson. But his coach indicated that he wasn't placing any blame on the veteran netminder, although he did confirm that Jerry Cheevers will resume in the rotation tomorrow night in Montreal. Johnson said, it's just what I said. We had a total defensive collapse. We were just plain lousy. In between the games, uh, there was a little bit of news that came out. Uh, Bernie Perron, who lost his mask that was thrown into the Madison Square Garden crowd in Game 2, was specially fitted for another of those $150 models by the company owner Jacques Plan, his goaltending partner, and it was confirmed that Bernie would be wearing a new mask and would play for the Maple Leafs in Game 3. Meanwhile, in the... Uh, Chicago Philadelphia series in the Western Division the Flyers players began to anonymously take shots and snipe at coach Vic Stasiuk who's been unpopular with his team for this entire season and the thing that really rankles the players apparently is his constant line switching one player who allowed himself to be identified was Andre Lacroix and he's had numerous run-ins with Stasiuk all season many of the uh, Philadelphia players refused to be identified when they complained about Stasiuk's constant line switching but Lacroix stepped up and just said I don't understand what he's doing when you keep a 20 goal scorer on the bench they're going to need Lacroix to score a few goals or this thing's going to be over in four games and there isn't anybody who thinks that it's going to go any longer than that a few quotes from around hockey after the first two games of the playoffs. There's a Montreal bookie who said no one is quoting uh, line odds on this series now, meaning the Montreal-Boston series. He went on to say that it's too hard to figure and most of the action is on individual games anyway, but I think Boston 8-5 to five would be about right because the Bruins have to win at least one game in Montreal if they're going to take this series. 
Bruins coach Tom Johnson in another quote uh, that he's going to have to win a game in Montreal says, we broke the record for most road wins this season, didn't we? I don't think we're worried about where we're going to have to be playing. And Rangers goalie Ed Jockman explained why he skated the full length of the ice to enter Thursday's brawl in New York. Ed said, it'll probably cost me $100 to the league for doing it, but if I hadn't gone down the length of the ice to join in, it might have cost me $500 from my boss. Well, it seemed like the bookies were again in... uh, in of great interest I guess you could say to hockey fans after the first two games and a lot of people were changing their bets and hedging their bets but more people figured that the Rangers and Bruins would be awakened and sharpened up by their game two losses well those people probably lost a lot of money that they put on game three bets as Toronto sparked by brilliant goalkeeping of Bernie Perrant new mask and all topped the Rangers three to one at Maple Leaf Gardens and the Canadians spurred on by their rabid supporters in Montreal defeated the Bruins by an identical score of three to one uh the difference in the game rookie goalie Ken Dryden performing spectacularly often miraculously as he bewildered and frustrated the Boston Snipers on Saturday night. Meanwhile, in the Western games, for Games 3, Bobby Hull scored a couple more goals to power the Hawks past the Flyers 2-1, to and the Blues won a game up on the North Stars, not unexpectedly, uh, with a 3 nothing win in Bloomington, Minnesota. So that took us to Sunday evening and uh, these would be the fourth games of the series. Be pretty crucial. The game Sunday night did not disappoint, at least in the Eastern Division. The Rangers tied their series as expected by taking a 4-2 win at Maple Leaf Gardens and the Bruins did likewise and that uh, gave Montreal fans a little bit of an uneasy feelings as it proved the Canadians weren't going to use momentum to win this series. Bobby Orr was the main reason that the Bruins tied the series as he scored three times in their 5-2 win in the Forum. In the western side of things, Sunday evening, Chicago completed their mismatch with the Flyers, sweeping them aside like some uh, tiny pile of dust, 6-2 to two, right in the spectrum in Philadelphia. But in Minnesota, things got muddier, not clearer. Old pro Charlie Burns, who had coached the North Stars actually last season, came back as a player this year. Charlie scored the game winner with just more than three minutes left in regulation time to give the North Stars a 2-1 win over the Blues and that tied that series at 2-2 two to two, and St. Louis fans were feeling just a bit uneasy at the way their team lost that game. This game featured some pretty vintage netminders by a couple of veterans named Glenn Hall of the Blues and Gump Worsley of the Stars. Worsley was almost a surprise starter because Cesar Maniego had been absolutely spectacular even when he lost for Minnesota, but Worsley uh, 
came in because of general manager Ren Blair and coach Jackie Gordon felt Caesar maybe could use a rest. Well, both men faced each other many times over the years in different uniforms, but they put on a vintage goaltending display with Worsley coming out top in this one by the 2-1 to one score. So after the first four games, we have a few quotes that... Uh, were picked up uh, by the Montreal Gazette actually provided these after each game and they're quotes from around hockey not just from the Montreal Boston series. Uh, Stan Abodiak the Toronto Maple Leafs front office man was quoted as saying that any time a Frank Mahovlich goal was announced at Maple Leaf Gardens it drew a far bigger roar than anything that was happening in the Leafs Rangers game. Canadians John Ferguson, an authority on being a tough guy, was assessing the Bruins' uh, usual intimidation tactics against the Habs and why they weren't working. John said they're supposed to be super tough, but any time they shoved us, we've shoved them right back. Those last two games of the season might have led them to believe we're a soft club. Well, I think they know otherwise now. Here's a very interesting quote from Boston coach Tom Johnson, and it almost sounds, with this thought-to-be-a-runaway series tied at 2-2, it almost sounds like Tom is making a bit of an excuse when he says, don't forget that the Esposito line was on an incredible streak during the latter part of the season. They couldn't keep that pace up forever. Hmm... Maple Leafs executive King Clancy was asked about his participation in trying to get Bernie Perrant's mask during that brawl in New York when it was thrown into the crowd. And King said, geez, I charged over there and then I discovered I was all by myself among several hundred New Yorkers and I didn't have Charlie with me. What King was referring to there was his longtime buddy and teammate, Charlie Conacher. King was known as a guy who started a lot of brouhaha's during his playing days. And King was not the biggest guy, but he would take on the other team's biggest guy, knowing that when things get rough, his giant teammate, Charlie the Blue Bomber Conacher, was there to bail him out. Charlie wasn't around at this time, and the King suddenly realized that he did have some men in blue to help him. They were New York's finest. And finally, this quote from Jim Gregory, general manager of the Maple Leafs. Interesting, in a knockdown, drag him out, highly contested series. Here's what Jim Gregory uh, had to say. We got to do something about those sweaters coming over the heads in fights. I told them before the season, when we were getting new sweaters, they should make them so that they button between the legs. Then they won't come up like that. Jim Gregory was actually ahead of his time in a lot of things, and the sweaters was just one of them. So that is our show this week, everybody. And what did we learn from the first week of the Stanley Cup playoffs? Well, we learned that Montreal certainly not going to be any pushover for the powerful Bruins. And the way that kid goalie uh, Kenny Dryden was playing, you often started to think now maybe there actually could be an upset in the works. We learned that uh, despite the... uh, spin that's put on by the head offices in Montreal Montreal, and the uh, 
six established teams that there really is no parity between the established and the expansion teams just yet. The Hawks-Flyers series proved that in spades. And we also learned that goalies may well have to begin to have spare masks in the equipment bag, especially if they're going to be playing against Vic Hadfield and the Rangers in Madison Square Garden. So these first few games set up the uh, series and the scene for the next week, which will see the series uh, first round be completed. We're going to have the coverage of all of those games. Uh, One series decided, three more to go. As the games unfold, boys and girls, yes, there will be surprises. Non-related Stanley Cup news, some sad news out of the province of Quebec, and we will report on that. And Clarence Campbell levies the largest fines ever assessed to National Hockey League teams for fighting, and one National Hockey League owner whose team was fined says he'll simply refuse to pay, and we'll explain all that as well. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. Can't thank him enough for all his hard work. Andy's a true media professional, and if you are thinking of starting up a hockey podcast, get a hold of me. I'll put you in touch with Andy, and maybe you can put something together. He's a true media professional. The very popular Juno-nominated Toronto Indie Rock Group, the Rural Alberta Advantage, provides our introductory music. If you ever get a chance to see them perform live when things open up again, and it looks like it's going to be a while here in Ontario, don't miss the chance to see them. Other sound effects and musical uh, interludes in our show are produced by Andy Cole as well. Our research comes from the files of the Toronto Star, Toronto Globe and Mail, and of course the many publications found at newspapers.com. You can find us on Twitter at at Hockey50YearsEveryDay. We're on Facebook under 50 Years Ago on Hockey, and we have a WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com. This podcast is a proud member of the Hockey Podcast Network. And on that note, we invite you to join us for the rest of the 1971 Stanley Cup playoffs. This is going to be a memorable playoff year and we'll be with you all the way. And on that note, we will see you next time. When the-